Hi, this is Kyle Blakely, and you're listening to COS 23, The Mayor's Race. My guest today is candidate Sally Clark. Sally is a former Colorado Springs City Council member and served on the Colorado Springs Utilities Board during that time. She was elected to the El Paso County Commission three times, serving for a total of 12 years. While on the county commission, she served as chair and board member for the Pikes Peak Area Council of Governments and the Pikes Peak Rural Transportation Authority. She was also elected president of the National Association of Counties, the only person from Colorado ever elected to that position. And after leaving the county commission, she served as the executive state director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Rural Development for Colorado during the Trump administration. And she's been a business owner in Colorado Springs since 1986. Sally got her start in public service fighting against the closure of Fire Station 3 on the city's west side. She's also been a candidate for mayor two times previously in 1999 and 2003, both times before the city adopted the strong mayor form of government. For more information about Sally, you can visit her campaign website at sallyclarkmayor.com. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Kyle. It's great to be here. You're my first candidate that I'm interviewing for the podcast. Well, and, so, and I'm number one on the ballot, so what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe I should have looked and done them in that order or something. So I just want to talk about uh, a lot of the issues related to the campaign today and, and actually questions about you. Usually, for me, uh, the first question I always ask candidates really anywhere that I get a chance to talk to is uh, why they are running for that office. So why are you running for mayor? Well, you know, we have an amazing city. Um, uh, All of us who live here, whether you're a native or whether you've come from somewhere else to live here, like I did almost 40 years ago, almost four decades, um, it's just a beautiful place to live. And we're, I think, at important crossroads where we either, if you think of a scale tipping one direction or the other, I think we're at that tipping point of going forward or backward. Um, We've seen some great economic development things happening in our community. I think people are frustrated with so much growth that 68,000 people have moved here since 2010. Um, And I, I really think we're at that tipping point where we need to really look deeply into how we do things, how we operate things to make sure that we have a great future and that we don't end up like the city of Denver, which is happening. They're, they're the you know worst known for raising a family. We want to be the best city and the best place. And I believe bringing my unique experience working at all levels of government, from national to local to state, that I have that experience to bring and help our citizens and our city really move forward in a very positive direction and make sure that we preserve the lovely community that we all moved here or are living here for because it's such a great, great community. Yeah, I agree. And that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is I love it here. And I moved here from Kansas 30 years ago. And I kind of agree. That was another thing. I feel like we're kind of at that tipping point. And again, you know, pretty pivotal at the end of Mayor Souther's term headed in mm-hmm. an interesting direction. A lot of things coming up. So um, I agree. Elaborate a little bit more. You started to talk a little bit about your experience and everything, but talk about why you think you're the, the best person for this job. Well, I think um, having served, first of all, I, I took really an accidental step into politics. I didn't, I didn't 
I'm not a career politician. I didn't just decide one day I was just going to run for office after office. Um, some may remember the big fight to save Fire Station 3 over on mm-hmm. the west side. And, and I was just a small business owner. Um, I was involved in tourism. I was on the State Travel and Tourism Authority board and kind of working in my own business. And um, one day the then fire chief and city manager said, we're going to close your fire station. And those of us on the west side rose up and got involved. And somehow I ended up being the spokesperson. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but I think passion drives me and drives us in terms of what we want to see. And at that time, neighborhoods were dealing with the Constitution Expressway, which obviously has come back around <laughs> again. Um, and, you know, there were things like the Uenta Bridge and Mill Street neighbors were fighting for their and now they're back around again. I yeah. mean, it's, some of these things never really go away. But I ended up accidentally in politics and thought, hey, I can I can do a better job than those people who are sitting up there on that dais. Start, started attending council meetings and became a city councilwoman. Um, and then um, at the at the time where there was an open mayor seat, I decided to run for mayor. And so did uh, three of my colleagues on the on the city council, and um, it became a large race, kind of like it is today. Um, but we ran to to uh, against each other, and I didn't win. But the county commissioner opening came up. Chuck Brown um, was retiring, and so I ran for for the county commissioner role, and then was elected county commissioner. Then when I rolled off the county commission. Um, I took a little bit of time and was able to receive a, an appointment as the state director for U.S. Department of Agriculture Rural Development. And people ask, you know, what in fact is that? Um, essentially, rural development, when I was there during my tenure, we, we distributed $1.3 billion worth of of support, financial support to small rural communities. Everything from water and wastewater and, and infrastructure to community development, to affordable housing, to business and economic development, and built some great um, businesses and did economic development studies. So essentially, 45 different programs and seven offices throughout the state. So I supervised seven offices, as well as really we did uh, loans and grants and under USDA. If USDA, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, was a bank, it'd be the sixth largest in the country. So essentially, it was loans and grants that I administered and uh, worked and supervised staff throughout the state of Colorado. So um, in addition to that, I was president of the National Association of Counties, the first Coloradan, and so far the only one (laughs) to have been elected to that position. So I advocated on behalf of counties throughout the nation, 3,069, and represented them uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, traveled around the nation and experienced, I, I think, some great things. I interfaced a lot with the, the folks on the Hill. And sometimes we agree with them and sometimes we don't. <laughs> um, and I was always one to go ahead and make sure that they knew what counties felt and that we did not end up getting too many unfunded mandates passed down from the national government and the federal government. Well, that's great. Yeah. I uh, I was curious about the position working as the state director um, I had read a little bit about that, but was just curious about some of the details. That gr- sounds like a great program. 25 years later, after the fire station right. issue, did you ever imagine that you'd be, you know, this is where you might be in your career pol- politics-wise and everything? No. After I left USDA, I just took some time 
uh, spent some time with my husband. We did some traveling. And at this point, I just saw that that this is a really pivotal point in our city. And I thought, you know, if I was going to support someone, who would I support? And I looked in the mirror and said, you know, I think I'm the one that can really do this. I have a varied amount of background, again, from the national, the local, the state level. In addition to that, being a small business owner, knowing you know, for 36 years plus, we have run our bed and breakfast inn over on the west side in the hospitality industry. And while it's a small business, I do have employees. I do have to manage my bookkeeping and make sure that everything runs smoothly for our guests. It just is, I think, a great thing to, to have that private business experience as well as being as, as having that go government experience at all levels of government, which I believe I'm the only candidate with those particular qualifications and experience. Nice. Out of your career, political or otherwise, your business ownership, political, what's one thing you're most proud of? You know, I think in, in terms of looking back, the, the focus that I've always had for public safety, I mean, it may have started over a fire station issue, but as, as the Waldo Canyon fire raged and, and moved down into Mountain Shadows, and then we ended up with a flooding in Manitou Springs post-fire where houses were destroyed that essentially survived the fire, the, the thing that I am, I think, most proud of is, is having that experience to be able to go to Washington, D.C., to sort of pound on the table and say, you can't forget that we still need our recovery dollars. I watched, you know, people without homes because they, first of all, the fire hit. But secondly, I think that making, and, and I was requested by um, both Senators Bennett and, and Senator Gardner to come and testify on fire issues and wildfire and all of the things that were affecting counties. And I think that it was really important for us to say, we need these resources and here's why. And it's not just about us, it's about counties nationwide and cities nationwide that are struggling with different kinds of disasters. And so that disaster preparedness piece for me was one of the most important things as I saw getting started in politics over a local fire station, but then helping in the recovery. And I've learned so much over the years that I want to put that knowledge to work for the citizens of Colorado Springs to advocate for us, whether that's in D.C. or at the state of Colorado, when laws are passed and they just keep pushing things down on local businesses and on government to do things that they don't have to fund. They're essentially unfunded mandates for all of us. And I think there's the mayor needs to be strong and stand up and be tough. That's great. How would you describe then your leadership style? Let's say you get elected, you're mayor. Mm-hmm. What is your style? You know, my style, I think, is, is first of all, I'm, I'm an open person. I, I always, I don't assume that I'm the smartest person in the room. I really believe in transparency. And I think that part of that comes from my early time in politics of being forced away from essentially city information that should have been public information. So being transparent with the, with the people that you serve. The citizens are owners of the city of Colorado Springs, and I think we have a tendency to forget that. So open and transparent government and accountability, making sure that the tax dollars are spent the way 
that the citizens have either voted in or how they're written and and to make sure that we prioritize based on citizen concerns and needs that we look to where we have shortfalls and try and fill in those gaps a couple of the issues that i know we'll be talking about in this interview i think my passion comes from public safety but what i'm seeing right now is upticks in crime the lack of being able to hire new police officers and fill those ranks, and as well as 911 operators. In addition to that, being prepared for fire and emergency evacuations. But at the same time, we have a, a severe homeless issue, as do many other cities across the country. It's not mm-hmm. unusual for us. And how do we approach that? How do we be tough, compassionate, and innovative at the same time? to actually take the best practice models and make them perfect for our local communities so that we can address that, as well as the affordable housing crisis. People need places to live. And I know we'll be talking maybe about the water issue, but I think that comes into play with affordable housing for the future. Good. The next question was going to be, what are the three most important issues that you want to focus on. If you want to talk about that a little bit more on any of those. Sure. Well, and and I I have a long list and people can look on my website and see, you know, it's not that I haven't thought about transportation or thought about water resource and and our rising utility costs that we need to figure out how to get a handle on. It's really, to me, it's crime it's homelessness and affordable housing. And those are the top three that I'm hearing, at least from the public standpoint, that are most concerning. Um, I was at an older couple's home yesterday and just sitting in their living room, and we started, I asked them, you know, what are your top three issues? And guess what? That's exactly what they said was that the crime is is kind of overtaking things in all neighborhoods and they lived in the village 7 area. Mm-hmm. So I think that as we as we look at these we've got to first of all we can't deal with crime until we have filled our vacancies for our our public safety, primarily at this point, our police officers. Isn't it about like seventy positions? Yeah, that- I had just got I just got the figures yesterday from the the chief, and you know we have quite a few in class right now in training, but we're still short, and our attrition rate is almost ten percent. It's nine point five percent over the last four years in terms of how many we're losing every year who are retiring out or just leaving for one reason or the other. So we can't keep up. Even even if we looked at filling, let's say, those 50 to 70 positions that were short, we can't keep up with that because we've got this other problem of attrition. So one of the things I think, and, and looking at it from a more specific standpoint we need to do is figure out our recruitment piece you know, what are our standards? What are the things that we need to look for? How do we attract new police officers to want to be in the, and it's a nationwide problem, but when you look at the number of cities our size, they have a much lower attrition rate. So what are they doing? How can we model and look to other cities to see if they're successful? What are they doing to recruit new folks? Looking at incentives for our officers, our our police force, who can maybe recruit new people, and how do we give them an incentive, and incentives for folks to stay, for them to stay in the force when they might otherwise be able to retire, how can we keep them without forcing them out or them wanting to leave? So I think there's a lot of different options that we can take on 
in looking at what other cities are doing around the country and how they're maybe more successful than we are, because this is a great place to live. And I think that's where the affordable housing piece comes in, too. If you're trying to recruit, they need to be able to find a place for their family. Yeah. I subscribe because I have a marketing communications business. I subscribe to a lot of RFP services throughout the state. And what I've seen over the last year or so is several RFPs coming out for communities and counties looking for that help in recruitment. I mean, yeah, yeah, just Weld County just had one last week. And um, so it definitely you can just see just by the increase in RFPs uh, what an issue it is all over. Well, and while we have 821 in the budget, we don't have 821 in the force. And I think that's a problem. And then you look at the number of dispatchers and we're short there too. I believe the the chief just sent me some figures and and we have around 110 or so that are authorized, but we've only filled those with around 70 some dispatchers. So when you call 911, how, first of all, how long are you going to be on hold? Um, Or if you're calling the 4447000 number, which is the non-emergency number, and you get tired of waiting on hold, (laughs) are you going to hang up and then dial 911? Which is interesting because the numbers to the non-emergency number have gone down while the 911 calls continue to rise over the last four years. So the question is, why would those calls be going down? Are they just hanging up and not wanting to sit on hold? So that means the crimes aren't necessarily being reported even when they're not an emergency, um, or the dispatchers are picking up 911 calls when it's really not an emergency. And yeah. that's concerning too. They have a tough job. I certainly wouldn't want to be a dispatcher because everyone who calls has a problem. Yeah. On the affordable housing, it's an issue that fascinates me because affordable housing has been talked about for years. And then over the last few years, you kind of hear this other term come into play, attainable housing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of two things. It's I look at affordable housing as more for like lower income families or, or people having some kind of subsidy or that along those lines. And attainable housing as being more kind of that entry level, while obviously rents being manageable, but Mm -hmm. also kind of that entry-level home price for, you know, young couples, uh, individuals that want to get into being able to own a home. So I hear a lot of talk about all this. I just don't always hear a lot of solutions to it. So what, in your mind, with those issues out there, what do you think might be some of the things that you would want to do or try and do to help overcome that? Well, as in my positions in the past, I've been really good about, I think, trying to bring folks together to find solutions. I know there's an affordable housing coalition that's been working and creating a new nonprofit to oversee and kind of pull the folks together that are dealing with that. It, it's really multi-layered. Um, when you start to peel away the onion and or it's like pulling on an afghan and it just keeps unraveling, but it never it never gets smaller. You have to look at the criminal justice piece of it, and I know that comes into play with the homelessness piece and mental health and and um, drug and substance abuse. And then we have the other piece of it where we've got, you know, the, the cost of building materials has gone up, the lack of additional land. And I think that's where that water rule comes into play, that should we just come up with a, a magic number 
that's picked out of the air that that's what the, the right number is for no growth, I think we have to take a bigger look at the whole community. And having been a county commissioner on kind of the other side of it, yeah. I see it from a broader perspective as a as a county that's, you know, essentially 2,200 square miles and a city that's roughly 200 square miles. We've got to work with those county commissioners, those water districts. We've got to figure out how we grow because otherwise we'll just end up with unattainable sprawl. And not have enough water resources for everyone. It's got to be done, I think, in a more broad perspective in terms of that water piece so that we can grow and we can afford to build. And I think there's different levels, as you said, what's attainable. Well, it depends on who you ask. With interest rates where they are today, a young family may have a few months ago been able to afford maybe a $220,000 house. Today, they can't afford that because the interest rates have ticked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I b- bought my first house, Welling and I were trying to buy our first house. The prime rate was 21%. So we got a 14% loan. We thought that was just a killer <laughs> deal. Obviously, that's not where we are today. When HUD looks, when the housing and, when housing and urban development defines affordable housing, essentially for them, it's it, you shouldn't be spending more than 30% of your income on the cost of your house, no matter what income you have. Um, but then you look at, at those that are in the median income for household, which is around $77,000, those folks aren't going to be able to buy. And I always believed, and with my work with USDA, we did a lot of affordable housing projects. We worked with, um, not with organizations similar to Habitat for Humanity with the self-help builds. We did a lot of financing. It was a great deal. It was no money down and low interest rates and sometimes were subsidized. But we also have to engage the housing authority. You know, what is their role here in Colorado Springs? Is it just to provide Section 8 vouchers for those who need them? Or is it really to be a convener? And I think the mayor can be the convener, and I want to be that mayor to be able to bring those folks to the table, which are already there. But then sometimes look for unlikely allies. Sometimes you forget to, to talk to your neighbor. It's it's that, you know, did anybody, did anybody ask the guy next door if that was something that impacted them? And I think that that is what I bring to the table is wanting a broader discussion. Having come from, you know, neighborhood neighborhood rabble rouser, for instance, (laughs) um, to where I am today. I was kept out of city government. And so I think it's important to bring people into into this discussion to see what type of housing. Does everyone want to live in an apartment? I certainly wouldn't. When you have kids and a dog and you you want a small home, uh, one of the things I know at the state level that a couple of our legislators are working on is trying to make the senior homestead exemption portable so that they can take it with them. Good. I think that makes sense. So if an older couple has the homestead exemption and they want to move to a smaller home, wouldn't that behoove them moving to a smaller home and opening up that market, which is pretty um, tough right now for real estate, to open up that market for folks that may want to buy it that are a young family or a family who's growing who needs that bigger home. So there's a lot of different ideas, and I think we have a great city and we have great opportunities to bring folks together. Yeah, I that senior homestead issue, I totally agree. I would love to see that happen. We've touched on it a little bit, so let's just jump into the water issue. Mm-hmm. What it is, and again, just 
I, I stole this from an article in the Gazette. The, the new rule will, re- will require Colorado Springs utilities to have 128% of the water necessary to serve existing city demand and the projected demand from new properties before any property can be annexed into the city. An interesting issue. Some feeling it, it is a true water issue. Some people thinking that it's more of an anti-annexation issue or limiting large developments from being able to come into the community. And I know, you, as you've said, it deserves further discussion. What other things around that issue do you think are key for people to understand? Well, I actually wrote about this and put it out in a newsletter. It's on my website if you go to my blog page under the About section. uh, So folks can look and see where I stand on this. But what I really believe is that we need a larger discussion, that this is too quick, too too knee-jerk reaction to... An one annexation yeah. proposal. And, you know, whether or not you agree with the annexation really isn't the long-term effect it will have. I think it's important to take a moment and say, how is it that we want to grow? You know, do we put a fence around the perimeter and say no more? If we do that, we leave sort of a monopoly of maybe certain developers that may own the the bulk of the property. So then how is that affecting our ability to provide more affordable housing when we don't have that ability? I worked on utilities. I, I mean, I was working as a county commissioner to get the Fountain Creek Watershed District established so that we could come to the table with Pueblo to get the pipeline for Southern Delivery, which is now in place, thank goodness. Yeah. I worked with the Bureau of Reclamation regarding the uh, conduit down to the lower Arkansas Valley because we knew that the lower Ark might have water as well, that that we might be able to get some of those rights. And I think we're working on some, the utilities has been working in concert with some of the farmers and ranchers uh, down in Bent County, I believe, to uh, access some additional water resources and put in new pivot irrigation systems, which some people aren't aware of, but I could talk about those all day. I'm not going to, I promise. But um, because USDA did a lot that had solar panels on them so that they could run their pivot irrigation systems for their agricultural needs. But I think that the important thing is that we have a bigger discussion. How will this affect El Paso County? We have lots of individual water districts that are in the county, and they're they're tapping into groundwater. So once those county folks run out of water, or let's say they do, then they're going to come to the city looking for it. Um, I believe, you know, out of our estimation now of 92,000 acre feet, we've still got a surplus, but we do need to be careful and cautious about how we use it. Some of that's going to come from cutting down on our water usage, and we're seeing that already. Some of it may be recycling. um, Some of it may be just doing different types of of landscaping that we need to implement so that we're not all putting in expensive and water-wasting Kentucky bluegrass as much as I love it, and General Palmer (laughs) brought it here. Um, I think that we all have to look at new ways to conserve. So that, I think, is is a big piece of it. Long-term, we have to do this as a community, and I am committed to, within my first 90 days, putting together a task force that will look at water from a very specific standpoint, bringing in the county commissioners, bringing in the water providers, talking about this and how we're affected long term, because it's not really a growth issue. It's really a water issue 
that we need to grow as a community and figure out what that looks like while still being able to provide people with homes, new homes to live in. Good. I want to jump into some of the other uh, issues right now, just out of curiosity. The only ballot issue on, I think, in April is the tax, Mm -hmm. uh, the TOPS extension. Yep. Do you support that? I do. And I'll tell you why. Um, First of all, when I was on city council, I voted to put TOPS on the ballot for the the second round of trails and open space tax. And I just, I mean, I think that as we talked at the very beginning, why do, why do we live here? Because we have this amazing place. When, when guests come to, to my business, the first thing they ask is, how do we get to Garden of the Gods and Pikes Peak, right? But we're also loving our parks to death because we haven't maintained them. I think it's important. The one thing that I think this new ballot initiative, I was just talking to one of the advocates that I've known for many, many years yesterday, and he said what it does is it actually gives us more ability to focus on the acquisition and the maintenance piece and make sure that we take care of it long term. And I think that's why I support it, because our open spaces are really why we live here. How many places can you go where you have all these free city parks, uh, free county parks? I mean, Bear Creek is right in the middle of our city. I worked to get a conservation easement over Bear Creek so that it couldn't be developed. And there was because there was concern about new development. Um, Jones Park was another one of my um, projects. And in addition to that, I was on city council when we first worked with the Trust for Public Land in purchasing Red Rock Canyon from then-owner John Bach, who then the city was able to purchase that with TOPS dollars and essentially refinance it under the city with the trails and open space tax. So we wouldn't have Red Rock Canyon today. Um, when I was on council, I was on the utilities board, and we denied extending the water line to Red Rock Canyon uh, for the, the little mobile home park there. And as a result, then, then we were able to get that under the city. And I yeah. think that, that trails and open space is one of the reasons that people move here, and we really need to preserve it. And where else can you go to all these free parks? than Colorado Springs and the Pikes Peak region. Good. I agree. I think TOPS is one of the best things this city has done. I want to stay on parks for just a second, and this is a little bit of background. You probably know this, but so back in 2008, before the big recession, about almost 8.4% of the city's budget went into the parks department. Now, I think most recently in, for 2023, it's 5.9% of the overall budget. Mm-hmm. So as a percentage of the whole, it's dropped significantly. Right. And there are gaps. I mean, there's the they, they did the study that showed there's like $270 million of backlog needed just maintenance improvements mm-hmm. in the parks area. Would you support increasing the city's funding of parks and recreation back up closer to that 8.4% of the overall budget? I think it would add around $11 million to the parks funding from the general fund. Uh, So I'm just curious, is that something that you'd be supportive of? I think what I want to do when I get into office is to do a 360 review of everything, to look at the budget with a microscope or um, and to make sure that we are funding things appropriately to take a look at all of our FTE counts. Are they temporary employees? Are they permanent employees? How does that all work? 
really to take a look at everything and and do not necessarily an audit but do a 360 review talk to the employees too i think there needs to be an employee survey to see what they think about their different departments and how they're operating and really look for some efficiencies look for contract negotiations on some of the contracts that may exist it's really gonna i mean I'm not just willing to say, oh, yes, I'm going to fund that because I don't know. I have to look at the budget. And I have looked at the budget. Um, And we have a lot of dollars that are coming from the American Recovery Act today that won't be there tomorrow. There's a lot of money that's flowing in that came as a result of COVID recovery and ARPA dollars from the federal government. And now here we are at this place where it's going to start to go away. And how are we going to fill in those gaps? So public safety is number one. But as related to parks, I wanted to talk about a public safety issue, that this is where a lot of the homeless issues are coming into play, too. I had a call the other day from someone in Rustic Hills. She won't take her kids out on the Rock Island Trail because of homeless issues. Now, I live on the west side, and I think of mainly the downtown corridor and along Fountain Creek and along Monument Creek. But, but obviously, it's affecting all parts of the city. I heard from someone from Briargate the other day, someone even down in the Broadmoor area, and all over this city where we're seeing more and more folks that are just camping out and leaving trash and not and people not feeling safe. And, and I think, you know, while I believe in um, concealed carry, for instance, and, and I'm, I'm a pro second amendment person at the same time, I don't want to have to carry my concealed carry a firearm with me on a city park trail. I think that families need to feel safe out there on their trail systems. And we have to address that too. Now the city has put on some park rangers. We have about six hot team members for the homeless outreach team that, that try and help clean up those, those camps. But we don't have enough of those folks either. And then with the shortages in the police department, that doesn't help. Everything, there's cause and effect in everything we do. But understanding that bigger picture, I think, is going to be important. Um, I support our trails and open space. I think we need to look at that. I don't know why it has gone down. But I was a big proponent for keeping the Westside Community Center open. And those community centers are integral to our most at-risk kids to providing educational opportunities so that they become productive adults and don't become the criminals of the future. Uh, The sheriff doesn't want more criminals in in the (laughs) jail, and neither do the county commissioners because they have to fund it. And I, the sheriff runs the, the largest mental health facility in our county. We've got to get a handle on these things because it's a quality of life issue for all of us. And we have a great community. We just need to keep it there and improve upon what we already have. Yeah. Yeah. I think the big recession, the budget just went way down. Right. And then it's kind of inched back up over time. It just hasn't, on a percentage basis, hasn't gotten quite back up to where it was. I will not be turning off the streetlights or not watering our parks and, and trees and, and our open spaces just to save money. I don't think that's the way to go, which happened yeah. a number of years ago. Yeah. I think going forward, we have to look at our priorities and, and do more town meetings where citizens can tell us where their priorities are and figure out how to engage folks in our community more 
so they feel like they're a part. I mean, one my slogan is, you know, our voice, our city, and our mayor. I think that a lot of citizens feel like their voice isn't being heard today, and that's what I want to change. I want a more open government. I want more accessibility to the mayor's office, and I want to hear whether it's a mayor's suggestion box or just being able to easily get a hold of a person to give a complaint so you don't have to go on a really difficult to, ma to manage app, which is the GoCOS, while it's great, it also has its shortfalls. If anybody's yeah. tried to use it, you gotta log in, you gotta do all this, and, and Mrs. Smith, who's 80 years old out in you know Rustic Hills, isn't gonna be able to figure out that app, but she still needs to report her pothole. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't tried it. I'll have to go actually try it out. One of the questions I had here, last November, Colorado Springs had recreational marijuana on the ballot, mm -hmm. and it failed. Right. If that issue were to come back up, would you support it or oppose it as mayor? As a commissioner, we implemented medicinal marijuana, and we were tasked with putting together regulations to regulate it and how it was regulated. I think I, I agree with Mayor Southers in the position that he took, mainly because of our strong military presence here in our community and the message that it sends, um, also the impact on kids. So, you know, I do not see myself supporting recreational if it goes on the ballot, the citizens make those decisions, and then we figure out how to regulate it. Um, I think that sometimes the money that you would raise probably outweighs the cost of doing business in terms of the other side of it. But I think that the military standpoint is really important to me. I'm a military wife. We have a very strong military presence here in our community. We want to keep Space Command here if we're gonna to continue to make that case for keeping our military strong here in our, our community, I think that that is an important piece of that. Okay. We've talked about a lot of the big issues, public safety, homelessness, affordable housing. Talk to me about maybe some of the other issues that in kind of looking through your platform, some of the things that are more important, like roads and infrastructure. How do you feel like, I mean, right now, Colorado Springs has two taxes right. that impact roads and transportation. I mean, do you feel like that's sufficient? Is that overkill? Or where do you feel like we are right now kind of in that roads and, and transportation issue? I think we're in a good place. We've got 2C in place, which is the city tax. And then we've got the Pikes Peak Rural Transportation Authority, which is obviously something that I supported even before I was elected to the Board of County Commissioners and, and on City Council when we were talking about it first. So I think continuing that is, is important. What I do see a lot of frustration about is that we're maybe not maintaining as much as we should be and really understanding what needs are um, from a city perspective Again, I, I was at a meeting the other day where they talked about it was that smart COS meeting that the mayor put on with regard to how they find out if the roads need certain kinds of repair and this machine that can go along and take photographs. But as I've been driving around, and in fact, it was interesting because I was delivering yard signs yesterday <laughs> all over the city. And I have to tell you, the most interesting part of that 
was I was paying attention to driving through different <laughs> neighborhoods. It really gives me a good perspective of the whole city, not just my neighborhood. And here we are with our city looking at, at you know, new roads, but when do we need to repair the old ones? And there's lots of potholes and areas that I sort of think as new areas of town when you go through like Rock Rimmon, for instance, Rock Rimmon seems new to me because I live in a neighborhood that was established in the 1800s. But when I drive through those streets, there's some significant potholes. And, and so I think we need to do a better job, and whether that's a pothole patrol or something, to make sure that our list of improvements is known and transparent so that the people, the citizens of Colorado Springs, can look on a list and say, oh, here's when my, here's when my street is supposed to be surface, resurfaced. Um, curb and gutter that's literally falling apart that and then we're putting in pedestrian ramps but I've seen in my neighborhood them take out pedestrian ramps that already existed and put in a new one maybe to meet new specifications where the next block has none and so how are we prioritizing those transportation improvements I think is a, a big question for me in terms of how we move forward and make sure that all neighborhoods are well-maintained. Okay. Are there any issues we haven't touched on that you think might be important? Are there any surprising issues that maybe people aren't really thinking about right now? Well, I'd really like to continue to advocate for keeping Space Command here and making sure that we're letting our voices be heard in Washington, D.C. I know that our senators have tried to take a little more proactive approach recently, but it's going to take our community to rise up. I mean, I was part of the original discussion. I was on city council when the federal government was talking about the base realignment and closure, BRAC, with Fort Carson and all of our military installations. And I, I think the fact that I have the experience working at all levels of government being in D.C., I mean, not that I'm going to live there, but but a travel there to go across the aisle to talk to the folks that will make those decisions. And I think the mayor of the second largest city in the state of Colorado has significant influence over what happens. Um, what did we do wrong in terms of how we're, you know, Huntsville does have an extremely active legislative delegation in D.C., and I think that, that we need to pull together more as a community to advocate for our military installations and bases. So I think that's one of the things, as a military wife, I know the importance of our military, how difficult it is for our military families to be left behind when their their spouses deploy and I just I have this sense that we really just need to be pounding the table more and, and not I think that having more of a liaison position with the military from within the city, I think the homeless piece needs a very you know high level homeless discussion on this. Yeah. And there are just we have this great community that we want to keep that way. That's the way I look at it. But we see little parts eroding, whether that's your street and your potholes or whether that's homeless folks on the street, that it's not kind and compassionate to see people living or starting 157 fires in January alone to keep warm. 
those are not, that's not a compassionate way to look at it. So we have to be tough and enforce the laws that we have. We have to be compassionate and we also have to be innovative, which I think on the homeless piece is looking to other cities that have been successful in certain components and trying to put that together for our community. Um, the fire evacuation issue is a big deal for me. I think it's, I think some great discussions have been made. There are some national standards that no one has talked about yet from the National Fire Protection Association that I'd like to bring out to discuss. It's NFPA 1616, which provides a really good template for us to use, and I have yet to hear anyone bring that up, and that's a national standard that we can look at with regard to evacuation and disaster planning. Um, these are all things I think that I bring to the table. I was talking to someone the other day and we started talking about people who had been involved in government. And of course, Mayor Bob Isaac, a longtime mayor, was a friend of mine and a mentor yeah. of mine. Uh, God rest his soul. Yeah. But he was one of those folks. And, and they said, you know, what was the name of that city attorney that worked back then? And I said, oh, you mean Jim Colvin? And so I, I guess what I bring to the table is that historical knowledge that no one I can see on the other list of 11 candidates has and that I can go back and remember when, when this happened and not say that we're not going to repeat the past sometimes, but to say I have that experience and that knowledge, that institutional knowledge of being in city government, being an individual fighting city government, being a business owner, being a, <laughs> being a county commissioner and be serving at the national level and the state level in serving communities across the state of Colorado gives me a really unique perspective that I want to bring to the voters and, and to the citizens of Colorado Springs to represent them in the mayor's office. Thank you very much. The main reason I did this is I'm really hoping I can get this out there to voters and people can really get to, to know the candidates mm -hmm. and kind of see who fits their personal perspective the best. Is there anything coming up in the campaign that you want to let people know about in the events or... Anything specific that you might want to share? Well, there's lots of places to see mayoral forums. And I, on my website, on my um, blog, I have a list of the ones that I have confirmed to participate in. Some of them are private, so not private, but they might not be public forums. You might have to register or pay to go to a luncheon, something like that. Uh, the Chamber has one coming up. I know United Way is hosting one at yeah. the Family Success Center. Uh, Habitat for Humanity is doing affordable housing. If you want to go to my website at electclark.com, I have a lot of that information with a list of the mayoral forums. And just, you know, make sure that you sign up for my newsletter. I try and keep my constituents and the folks that have subscribed just up to date on the different things that are going on and my perspectives on different issues. I, I have a passion for communication. And that, I think, is the thing that really sets me apart, too with wanting to be in this position is keeping government or making sure that government is transparent and accountable to the citizens that we serve because truly our residents of Colorado Springs are the owners of the city and whether that's utilities business or whether that's general city it's it's all it's all how we work together and I want to be that voice for the citizens while I'm in the mayor's office at the city. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay. I really appreciate this very much. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of COS 23, the Mayor's Race podcast. This program is brought to you by Avant Strategies, 
Special thank you to producer Ted Robertson for help putting this program together. If you're interested in partnering with COS 23, the Mayor's Race podcast, you can reach out to me at kyle at avantstrategiesllc.com. 